Hi, I'm Reverend Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to the Forum. Welcome to the Spiritual Forum, everyone. I'm so glad you're here. I am so excited about our guest today. But before I go into that, I just want to remind you all to do what you can. If you like this podcast, let me know. Uh, give me a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Check out thespiritualform.org. You can leave a donation, small or large, anything's helpful. And don't forget that I am co-hosting a retreat this October called the Road to Eden, and it's a whole planet spirituality retreat. You can learn about that at thespiritualforum.org. So that's all I have as my run-up. Today, I'm going to have an amazing conversation with Annika Lucas. Annika is an author, speaker, advocate for human trafficking victims, and creator of the unconditional model. Her work is based on spiritual experience of a decades-long healing journey after surviving being sold by her family as a sex slave. Her healing through psychotherapy, writing, yoga, and meditation were synthesized during a decade of service with incarcerated populations through the nonprofit organization she founded and with survivors of sex trafficking inside and outside of prisons. Sharing her own healing shaped her message for personal and global evolution through the unconditional model, a modality she developed and teaches in workshops with therapists, yoga instructors, and providers around the world. And she recently published a book titled Quest for Love, memoir of a sex slave, which I have read in its entirety. So welcome, Annika. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to say to my to all the listeners why I think this is so important, this podcast, and why I'm so committed to having your story be told. Uh, first of all, many people who know me know that I talk about you all the time <laughs> because you really changed my life. You changed my life entirely, and you changed my life because... Uh, I, I sent a prayer out to spirit, to God saying, you know, show me what I can't yet, I haven't yet seen. Show me what I'm unable to see because I want all of the scales off my eyes. I want to see what this world is. And I'm very aware of things like cruelty to animals. And, and so I'm a very much an advocate for that. But I thought I was getting just a little bit, you know, like a little bit like I'm awake and I knew I wasn't. And so I asked God, show me what I cannot yet see. And I stumbled upon a TED Talk, which was not yours, but in the comments, somebody mentioned you. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to check that out. So anyway, that's how I found the, the four-part interview series on YouTube. And I spent four nights, one, one um, video at a time, listening to it. And it was very difficult to listen to, but my eyes were open to what what is real in the world. And it, I'm completely changed as a person because of that. So I'm I'm very, very encouraging to everyone who's listening that, you know, we are also distracted. We're all trying to live our lives. We avoid the darker parts of the world. It's very important that we do not avoid the realities of life. Um, and because the spiritual path is really about awakening and to what is real and to becoming our true selves. And we can't do that if we're avoiding what is real. And we'll never truly be keepers of the light if we avoid the dark. So that's that's why I think this is so, so, so important. And I'm so excited to have you, Annika. Oh, thank you. 
And um, yeah, it's so beautifully put, by the way. And um, basically, there is no bypass. <laughs> and uh, and yet, I also feel very grateful to John Paul Rice, you know, who is someone who has that awareness and who is connected to you and who put us together. So, uh, you know, I really, you know, he has a very strong voice for the light as well, and and I think equally addresses the dark and his own darkness as well. And, and I think he does a really great job also with bringing that message out there. He does. He's very wise, very articulate. And I had him on, I can't remember what episode it was, but we talked about the inner child and it was, it was a really great, great message. And it was great to have him on. Um, and yeah, I thank him too for, for connecting us. Um, when your book came out, I, <laughs> I Facebook messaged him. I'm like, is there any chance that you could connect me with Annika Lucas? I would love to have her on. So thank you, John. Big shout out for you. So um, I want to try to do this in two <clears throat> single hour segments, if that's possible. Everyone knows my style is organic, so I'm not sure if I can stay that uh, discipline. But my my thought is that we'll spend the first hour and allow you to really share your experience. And this is like in the 1970s in Belgium to share your experience, uh, some of the the stuff that's in your memoir, whatever it is that you feel that you can share, so that people could really understand the reality of this child sex slavery that's going on at the highest level of our the elites in the world, and and just it's kind of a big huge wake up call. Um, so I, I want to focus on that and also the experiences you had, even in what seems like the most traumatic circumstances I've ever read about, that you still were looking for love, seeking love, and you still had these experiences of the light. And I just think that's really, really hopeful. And in the second hour, I'm hoping we get into your healing and what we're, what, what can we do? What can we do as people? And what, what you're doing as a, as a more integrated you know, whole person now. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a lot of my talking. So why don't you tell me a, a little bit about your story and just kind of share what 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 it all is? Yes, thank you. And clearly, you're very eloquent on the subject. So I just feel, um, just want to say that's um, grateful. You know that you can frame the conversation this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it's going to really bless a lot of people. So it's going to be a great, great uh, conversation we have. Well, thank you. Well, yes, I, you know, I'm going to show my book again because the title is Quest for Love. And of course, that's not an accident. It was a quest for love. I was always looking for love. It is the memoir of a child sex slave. And um, I believe that um, on a psychological level, I was um, blessed to have received love in my early years, not from my mother, whom I believe is a psychopath. And she had me as a single mom in 1963 in Brussels, in Belgium. And um, she liked working. She was working for the then uh, radio and television station, the only one in Belgium. And uh, so she gave me to uh, the communal daycare center for of the town, which is a part of Brussels. And um, the woman who uh, ran that daycare center loved me very much. And I've remembered um, being held on her body as she was even taking care of the other children, there may have been five or six or so other children, but she ha she wrapped me on her body. That must have been with sheets. I know there were no carriers at the time. And uh, I have remembered my mother's abuse, my mother's sexual abuse from that time. And the projection, the dark projection, which, you know, um, I would say that on the one hand, my mother um, did not see an innocent baby at all. Mm. I don't know if anyone has ever seen that, you know, that a parent who doesn't see their 
the innocence in their baby at all. So sometimes that comes out with weird comments, uh, which I have a very high trigger <laughs> uh, response to, uh, like people saying, oh, he's such a flirt and things like that. You know? mm-hmm. um, but, um, you know, because that 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 uh, natural uh, love that babies are, that, you know, coming into the world completely pure, um, my mother didn't, you know, had never clearly received that herself. And so she didn't recognize it. And all she could do with it was to try to destroy it. And um, that went through uh, what I would say is a constant projection, um, but also physical and sexual abuse. And um, then I was given to what I then considered my real mother. And at first I was frozen from the abuse that had happened in the hands of this other woman. And it took a while. It, I, I remembered, for example, like turning my head away. That was all I could do, um, you know, just to because I was unhappy that I'd had to be away from her and be abused. And then after a while, I would just sort of feel myself melt under that loving gaze, you know, having her pet my head and say I'm cute. And I could feel it too. It mostly, you know, you don't understand words, but you feel everything when you're an infant. So I felt the love. I felt the warmth. I felt what it was like to be a, a baby. And I would come to myself again and feel like myself, which at that time was, you know, an innocent little baby <laughs> and receiving that reflection from this lovely woman. Yeah, um, I, I think we all we all come in as innocent. I mean, we all just come in. I was just mentioning to somebody yesterday, it's like no matter what we've done or might have we might have either done or had happened to us in past lives, I think there's a reset button that happens and we come in as a baby and everybody comes in as this innocent baby. Absolutely. Even though there can be abuse, you know, prenatal abuse that happens and that can affect, but nevertheless, there's a soul. And then at the moment of conception, that soul is there and there is, um, there is, you know, a, a full person is right there, you know, <laughs> consciousness is there and uh, feeling everything. So even if there is prenatal abuse, there is still um, awareness, there is still, still that feeling awareness, which is, of course, has nothing to do with our material awareness and our our mental capacity or anything like that it's beyond obviously what where we go back to when we go to the other side you know beyond mm-hmm. the physical beyond the mental you know it, it goes back to that uh, pure feeling state so i did have that experience and i've credited that experience of being loved in my early years with my ability to um, know right from wrong from within mm-hmm. uh, because i had some self-esteem that grew from having a person there to reflect these um, these um, human evolutionary stages uh, emotionally about us specifically. Um, and I, um, and of course, gave me the capacity to also love, which, and also to have a sense of what love means, what it means, what love really means versus the um, model that I received, <laughs> which was that it was all about sex. Mm-hmm. That the only kind of love, affection, and and so forth that you can receive is through sex, and that, of course, is once my mother began to sell me. Now, the, se- the sexual abuse in my early years with my mother and other family members. <clears throat> well, my mother abused me in anger, um, but an uncle abused me. He clearly he was a child himself, and he clearly believed that it was love. Mm. And, um, even though I also, of course, initially felt the fear. I also 
started from that young age to believe that it was um, love. And um, and then at age five, um, there were um, there was a, a cleaning lady. My mother had married when I was three, and we had moved to Flanders. So now I've I had lost my caretaker, mm-hmm. and um, those are very sad uh, times. My stepfather wasn't really um, wasn't really there in his body. He wasn't really um, loving at all. He was very interested in his own son, who was born soon after, nine months after they married. And um, and then from that village where we lived, my mother started to um, sell me. But initially, it was through, I think, a cleaning person who came to work with us and her husband who groomed me and took me um, out for a whole year. There were always other children there, and they eventually took me to the first what I would say is an, an was it was an orgy in a castle, and it was um, it was a dress party. So these were all aristocrats, but they were dressed like hippies, mm-hmm. and there were this there, there was um, hippie music playing, and you know Jimi Hendrix, and you know that that music was playing. There were lots and lots and lots of drugs, and then I was abused on a stage by this uh, husband of this cleaning lady, and horribly humiliated and the people around me uh, there were quite a few people around me this was in some kind of a large salon in a in a castle and they were too high too drunk they were maybe a little bit disgusted by what this uh, man was doing to me but nobody cared nobody seemed to care so i um stood up and told them you can't do this to me i'm going to tell on you i'm going to make sure you all go to jail wow i mean and you were how old six and that that takes just a lot of inner strength, I think, to stand up as a six-year-old to all these adults who are, I mean, they're acting like all this is okay, you know, like there's nothing wrong. So that's amazing. Well, I had been so humiliated mm-hmm. that I felt that if I don't do something, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. And what that meant was I was physically maybe alive, but I was going to die inside. And that was my sense of self that I believe I had from the love that I'd received. Mm-hmm. Sense of self and that that self would die. That's That connection to the soul would die if I didn't do something. Right. And then when I stood up, I didn't feel that I was infused with strength, but that 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 did feel like it was God's strength. It didn't feel like it's me. Now it felt like this right. power. Right. 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 The opening up to the inner power. That's fascinating. So then what happened? Well, then I was threatened extremely graphically um, by the, I guess, the handler who was in charge of the children that night um, and was taken somewhere and then was shown a a dead body. And uh, I was told that they didn't want me, you know, they didn't want this to happen to me, that they liked me, they wanted to keep me there. And so... I shouldn't say anything, you know, I shouldn't speak up, basically, I should be quiet. And um, so that was the beginning of being used in a network in Belgium. And in the first three years, I was used as an expendable child. That's to say that I was given to anybody, um, because there were several aristocrats, particularly one baron who would kill children. Um, and there were several men who I knew killed children. And I was around it. I was, it happened. You know, well, I, I've had a memory of something really um, gruesome happening. Um, and the, 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 the sadism of this baron had to do with me 
um, believing that it could be me any any second. So it was really no reason why he didn't then also kill me that time. But there were several weird things like that that I didn't get killed, but I certainly could have. Mm-hmm. And it was very, very clear in the first years that I was expendable, that I could be killed. And then um, at age nine, something very significant happened that I was going to actually be given. So the Belgian network operated as a mafia and that used children for blackmail mostly. So in the first years, you know, the the Belgian um, Minister of National Defense at the time, who was also Prime Minister twice of Belgium, um, a man um, I name in the book, who had started out his career as a butcher and has moved his way up in um, politics and then became this mafioso um, boss of this Belgian arm of a global network, I should say. And so the sadism was complete. It was um, a power club. And anybody who wanted to belong was getting tested. And ultimately, that meant pedophilia. And those people who couldn't do it would have been weeded out. They would call it weeded, weeding out. I say those are the people with integrity that you know just uh, find other things more important than power. But those without any um, qualms and those who, let's say, are running from their own trauma the most. Mm-hmm just running from their own pain the most and just need that power cost what cost. They were the ones that I then got to see, and you know, as a, as a six, seven, eight year old girl. So it's kind of culling, a culling of people. And I, I just, I, it's, it's hard to even imagine, but we see this happening today. I mean, we know this is happening today with the Jeffrey Epstein thing and all that. So it sounds like um, the, the network is using children to blackmail some people and also to um, kind of discern who who are these people who are like us who will engage in these things and have this trauma, and 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 they're the ones that will be lifted into higher levels of power. Is it like that? Yes, exactly. Those who are more easily manipulable because they will do um, things that be a puppet on a string. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Exactly. All right. And and then the children. I mean, you guys are just complete. Uh, victims and you know you're you're just you're just being you're you're the tools that they're using yes and they have no no sense of you as a human or having a purpose in life or being a being that's worth anything no i found that in the network and especially after i became you know at age nine when i was sort of given to this international networker um who then took an interest in me and miraculous in a completely miraculous way um, I, my whole mind, body, uh, psychology had to be completely abandoned to the the purpose they were training me for. And then what they were training me for, even though that was completely to be completely the slave of this big shot, as I call him in the book, then this big shot networker, um, I had to be, um, it was also, it was so clever. It was so well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, they know psychology so much better than most psychologists and psychiatrists out there. Um, they know ex- they knew you know there was no experimentation done with me. I was trained to be the special slave to this man, and they took my natural gifts and used those in order to and then ex- and then enhanced those gifts, but all for their service. So there's these things that are done. They're all they're all they were always based on torture, which makes things go very fast. 
Um, although I do believe that there are natural ways to enhance um, our, you know, our, our human experience and, and, and our, you know, our, our instrument, let's say, our, our body-mind instrument. But um, when it's done through torture, it does go really quickly, but it's, of course, all fear-based. And that's necessary if you want to control someone. Mm-hmm. So, but that was v- very complete. And then, again, my connection in the mind control experience, for example. So this man took an interest in me and then I was um and then he took me to his own homes just to teach me um the ways of the elite so that I would be comfortable in that world he was also training me sexually uh, to make sure that I would feel pleasure but it would still all be at the service of the man mm. I would not you know uh get greedy with my pleasure or something like that I would it would be all for the man you know, I was trained very specifically, very well done again, and then um, and then sent to Germany for mind control and with a with an extremely sadistic doctor who I later found out was involved with um, had a high high position in what was the German Planned Parenthood. Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So this is a person who administered the mind control, and how old were you then? So I was nine. He was the head doctor there. There were there were young handlers there, 20, 20, 24 years old, maybe young men who were being also being used. It was strange. Very young men. And then he was the he didn't come in every day, but he came in sometimes. And he was extremely sadistic. And um, and there there's the example, for example, uh, when I was being um, electrocuted, you know, I was strapped to a chair and the chair was sort of like it was as if a chair that was tilted back it was felt like that and then these this doctor or these handlers would just sort of come in my face and as i was being my my brain was being electrocuted um i was being screamed at that um i was a whore okay so that's a messaging messaging and so that was repeated and while that was happening i was screaming inside i am me oh wow yes so all yeah, that fear yeah. and all that, you know, all that fear, that was the only thing I had left was just to scream, I am me, I am me, I am me. But that was surrounded by tremendous, tremendous fear that I would again, that I would lose myself completely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, I, sounds like it'd be worse than death. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that um, big shot um, deployed me uh, right away. You know, I, I was already, you know, I was in, brought back to Belgium, going to school. And then I was, but I was gone the whole summer of 72 and uh, also the whole uh, two week uh, Christmas vacation of 72. I was getting more training. um, He was going to create a platform for me so that I would be a minor celebrity so that the most powerful men in the world would take an interest in me. And of course, I was heavily trained to have those most powerful men in the world fall in love with me and think of me as their soulmate so that I could uh, get more. Um, I could, you know, I was trained to spot men's weaknesses and, um, and all of that was to basically help my owner to have some advantage over them mm-hmm. in their politics. Okay. So I want to pause here for a second because just the idea of an adult male looking at a nine or eight or nine or 10 year old child as a soulmate is, is a strange idea. But these well, men are. When I was yeah. young, it was supposed to be a dream girl, and uh-huh. then I would grow into this minor celebrity in France, and then it would be the soulmate. Right. Okay, got that. 
but I was also going to say that there, there's kind of an arrested development with these people, <laughs> I okay. think, so that they're arrested right at birth. You know, it's there is no no emotional development, no development, all. right? So it's not it wouldn't be peculiar for them. I think it's it's not peculiar for them to engage in these things with children, where the rest of us are, you know, are like what? Why? That's a child. But and that's why we can't it that understand way. it. Like we can't understand it because the power itself creates this mantle, um, and all these projections that are you know needed. We have to project our power onto them. We have to think that they are special, smart, and so forth. But the truth is that emotionally they are completely infantile, and I think that's what we can't understand. Why we can't understand? Yeah, you know how crazy they are. We can't understand what these people really do. Um, why they would be doing that because you you say well they have everything why right. would they rape a child and and more you know because that's not all they do they go further than that because it's satanic they've sold their soul literally to satan and i like to think of these things in psychological terms that you sell your soul to satan because you just are such a scared little boy and you need to protect you know your mommy who abused you and think that she's god and then everybody else is below you and so the superiority of that class, in fact, creates sort of a constant justification for them to do harm. Mm. It's really can... interesting. And I think that because people can understand this, I think that's when they go, that, there's no, that's not true. That, that can't be true. That can't be true. And it, it's because our inability, it, we're, we're like projecting our own selves onto other people. Like they must think like I do and they don't. It's very different. They do not think the way we do at all. Yeah. Yeah. And and mostly it's that we've been brainwashed into believing that they have something that we don't have when it's in fact exactly the opposite. They just take, 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 take from us. They take our power. They take our they take everything from us. I mean, they're not different in to us. They're completely exploitative because they have no sense of self. They have no connection to spirits because they have no sense of self. And so they are completely invested in the material world, which means they are looking for paradise here on earth through luxury and so forth. But also the power is what gives them this constant platform in order to seek freedom from what is essentially their own unresolved trauma. Yeah, I think that really, really explains it all. And I think what was interesting in your book is it seemed to me like even as a nine, 10 year old child, you could see some of that. Yes. Well, I... The way that this big shot took an interest in me is that I would say that I had an influx of Christ consciousness. It would have never happened without extreme divine aid. So as a nine-year-old girl in the darkest of circumstances, I saw the little boy in him. I saw all his fears. I saw how he had been afraid that he's slow, that he can't follow, that he's um stupid that he's ugly i saw all of it in a moment when i'm la when i was actually laugh essentially laughing at him but that laughter transformed and became like christ coming through me interesting so it was it wasn't just that you were really really um advanced child although you, you probably are but but it wasn't just that you you credit this to a, a, a christ consciousness that is like the, the awareness is coming through you. Yes. And, it was, and you're, one yeah. of those moments where I didn't care if I was going to be, be killed or not. I was laughing at him, which would have been caustic and sarcastic. But instead, this other energy came through me 
and this great love, you know, now I'm just seeing all of his own vulnerabilities and I'm understanding things uh, that I would, and, and, you know, that I would not normally have understood at all because I had seen him as a monster. And then suddenly I see all of him. I see his soul. I see his pain. I see his fears. And as I saw that, and of course he knew, and he was quite insecure uh, because he could see that I was seeing that. Um, so he, his interpretation of this moment of meeting Christ, if you will, was that I was sophisticated. Mm. And that's why he took an interest. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, he set out to then maximally exploit me now because now he's got this. Uh, so that special gift, I was trained so that infusion of Christ consciousness, I was then trained to find men's weaknesses. And then similarly, to put this soothing balm over their greatest fears and weaknesses so that I could be give them that nurturing they never received. Wow. And and, and, yeah, and, and while, while you're doing that for them, they're they're using this for the the blackmail and for the the network and finding their next puppets and all of that. Yes, and uh, not only am I doing that for them in this completely uh, contrived way, but it's also so contrived that the fact that I have to have to do it, um, they ultimately in emotionally, you know, this is what happens with mind control. You get in an emotional reality with someone, but it's not grounded. Mm. But emotionally, it's all true. It's like good acting. You know, you get into it with this person and you're like giving them that love that they never received. And in that moment, they're receiving that love that they've never received. And they feel incredibly good and high because now they're in that moment. And then, of course, it's a child slave. So it does. So so after the experience, it's over. Right, right. So it's like a drug or something, you know, some sort of high and then we can get rid of this thing. <laughs> It's exactly that. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And of course, this thing being a little girl who could never go and talk, who has no power at all in the world, who could never, you know, be a threat in any way, because that is how afraid they are to show themselves to, to be vulnerable, which of course to them is weakness. Right. Right. <clears throat> I, I have a couple, a couple of questions. Um, well, one is you talk about how uh, you you were you're doing this and you're also going to school. And I think people get, they go, well, you know, if you're going to school, you must not be experiencing trauma. And that's just not true at all. There's no one to talk to. I mean, right? There's no one to talk to about this. Who are you going to talk to about this? Oh, yes. And that continued long after school. <laughs> who are you going to talk to this? Who are you going to talk about? Uh, but of course, when I was going to school in the week, I was not aware of what was happening uh, mostly in the weekends. Even um, there were days that I was taken out of school and my mother would take me to one man or something. The next day I would go to school and I would have been sick and I would have a doctor's note and I would not remember what had happened because the shame mm. that I'm a whore. Right. Because that was programmed into you. Yeah. Well, that was, they tried to program that into me and I was, you know, mentally fighting it. But before that, I had been called a whore. From six to nine, I'd been called a whore, you know, thousands of times. Wow. So I was just naturally, you know, they just went there automatically. I was called a whore. They thought of me as that also, you know, it's not like they they saw me as a child either, just like my mother, you know, didn't really see the child in the child. Just think that uh, children are these little adults because they've never had a childhood, you know, they've never right. 
experience the, the the reflection of their own innocence. So they they don't believe in innocence even. Right. But, um, as far as not, so I had my own protection and not remembering. And then there was my mother whose denial was so thick that in her presence, none of that happened. None of that could exist because she was the best mother on earth. Mm. So we had that. So in her presence, I couldn't be myself at all, but it was convenient to not at all be myself and then also remember what that meant, being myself, you know, in other ways. Yeah, I think another thing that I got out of your book, well, I got so much out of your book, but it, you, you talked about how clever they were. They were so clever. I mean, I could, I could see that so clearly. And it, it looked to me like one of the things they did is to the children, they denied you the ability to even have an identity of being innocent. So yeah. they corrupted you. They corrupted you. You you all as children were forced to do horrible things, things that no children, not just the sexuality and with not not just that, other things. Um, the the story you tell about the rabbits and you know, harming each other and things like that. You're forced to do these things. I I'm I'm sure they have lots of motives for that, but but the motive that really stuck out for me is then you're not innocent. You you've done something bad. And, and then they prove to themselves that they are, you know, that that is the right, that that is correct. Right. If they don't believe in their own innocence, at the end of the day, it's they don't have a sense of themselves because they don't, they've never had a reflection of their innocence when they were babies. And because they've never had that reflection, they've created this entire belief system, which is called Satanism, around not being innocent. Nobody's innocent. Uh-huh. No right. one's innocent. And anybody who pretends to be innocent is faking it, is false, right? Yes. And anybody who who talks about right and wrong, right and wrong can only be a moralistic imposition. It can they don't understand that it's something that is innate, that is there's a natural law that we automatically connect to on a deeper level that we know right from wrong. To them, right and wrong are religious impositions. Okay. And external externally imposed beliefs rather than uh, real uh, laws. Right. Okay. And um, the the fact that the Christ consciousness could infuse you and show you the truth of these people who we would call monsters or evil or all sorts of words, but that you as a young child were able to see beyond the appearances, way beyond all those layers, all those layers of stuff that 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 the truth of their being that that there's there's something that's been lost there. To me, to me, that I mean, I think that your experience is just so horrifying. But it's also there's also kind of a good news thing to it because if you can do that, <laughs> if you can do that, we can do that. Everyone can do that. I think just be a, an opening for this Christ consciousness and 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 see what is at the core of people. And that doesn't excuse them at all. You don't go, oh gosh, you know, now I get it. I'll do whatever you want. It's not like that. <laughs> no, but there's there's some I think I think I think to heal this, to me, it seems like we first have to see it. Yes. We first have to see it. And that's why we're talking today, because we first have to see this. This is rampant in our world. And people will say, oh, it's just a few children. It's it, it's rampant in our world. And it's it's not all across children. our world. Not right. Right. It's not a few children. And because I read somewhere recently, somebody says, well, it's, you know, it's there's more children abused at home than there are in these networks. It's like, 
Well, it goes together. I know. Children <laughs> are abused at home that end up in the networks. Right, right. And, you know, you don't just say, well, because of that, this is, I mean, because of this is happening, that's not bad, or we shouldn't do something about this because this is happening over there. It's just a also, really, yeah, really bad. Also, not just children that are trafficked across the border. Maybe they were used for these things. I mean, they were, I'm sure, sure that some of those children are trafficked. Obviously, they're so vulnerable, but there's many, many, all children are vulnerable, first of all. Yeah. You know, and it all, you know, and, and, and parents have to be very guarded, you know, for their very on guard to protect their children from sexual abuse and from any kind of other abuse that, that is going on. I mean, that's a whole different conversation. But no, there's a lot of children that are very vulnerable. There's a lot of abusive households. And those are the very people that are being attracted to this. And then also there's a lot of Satanists and there's it's maybe not called Satanists everywhere. They can be other secret societies, but there's a lot of people that have no sense of self that are putting their own children up in these uh, groups that are existing on the local level everywhere. I think you we have to understand that. You know, uh, I speak to survivors all day long, survivors mm -hmm. of satanic ritual abuse and survivors of um, mind control. And this happens everywhere in the Western world. And these most of the people that I speak to, their families belonged to a sort of a satellite group of a small town or a larger town where there's a group of people who have the power and have that same kind of club that I was describing that I was trafficked to in Belgium, which is a small country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was on the national level in a small country. And then in the United States and Canada and Australia, it'll be a small group on a local level on a on a town level who then give their children up and that way then connect to people higher up in that network in that same network through the secret societies or through whatever club they're in and, and there's a these people are wielding power which is why it's so hard to get out yes. you know um i was reading about the case um, what was what was the name of the case um in in belgium where um Yes. Yes. I was reading about that yesterday and how, you know, their witnesses, you know, disappeared. Like <laughs> people who were, who were gonna, witnesses died, witnesses died uh, mysteriously or, or suddenly. And so it, it's like these people are in high power so they can squelch anything. Yes. And, and yeah. I think in the second hour, I do want to go into what we can do about that. Cause I, I think that's a really good conversation, but I kind of want to get back to um, your experience in a network. And I, I'm interested in, in those times when you also saw the light. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Of course. Yes. I love to talk about that. <laughs> um, so I found at the end of the day that all the experiences I had, all the experiences I had in the network, if there was no light present, or if there was no presence, no benign, what I, Often what I felt was like a benign presence, very loving, and I felt it was other than me. I didn't feel that this was coming from me. I felt that there was a benign presence that was extremely loving and, of course, benign, and I would get messages, and those messages would always be helpful. So that was the subtlest form that it would take. And the times that I didn't have this, I realized in later life that the reason I didn't have it then, that I didn't have this comfort and support, in the moment was because there was something that I needed to learn from mm. the experience. Because if I didn't have it, then I had to 
then I needed to go through the repressed feelings more of the experience, the grief and the pain of the experience. And as I would be going through that grief and the pain, I would learn something that was spiritually important to learn. Okay. So there's a reason why that presence was sometimes not there. And of course, when it was there, it was that soothing balm that gave me hope or awareness mostly, awareness, the greater awareness of the experience that I needed to survive or to be okay again. And then I started, um, you know, when, and there's an experience that I describe in the book when, 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 I, when I was left alone in a house without food for, for several days. So there I kind of naturally ended up sitting in a meditation posture and I started seeing a light. And, you know, it's as a beautiful, bright, yet subtle, uh, whitish, yellowish light that would appear in front of my eyes whether they were open or closed. So it was better to close them. Now I see this light still. It always feels like a blessing. Um, sometimes there's a little message that comes with it, but not always. And so there again, this light that I uh, saw there felt very soothing. And I felt that this light now, this consciousness or this light itself was teaching me uh, what I needed for that experience and also getting me really interested in death since I almost died. There was this awareness, though, that there's more to life than body and then the mind and that there's you know, something to prepare for with going towards death, that this is not just like this is your life and then boom, that's it, that there's more to life. I learned that from that experience from sitting, um, you know, while I was starving and while I thought I might die, came pretty close. And of course, ultimately, I had this powerful near-death experience um, in the most dramatic moment, which I think is the, the you know, sort of the, the climax of the book is that um, event and then the near-death experience that followed, which put me directly, you know, um, on the other side of the ether. And then that gave put me directly in front of my own teacher and other beings. It wasn't just the, the teacher. There were other beings there. And this absolutely glorious experience, glorious experience, I can't describe it any other way. It was more true than anything else I've ever experienced. And it gave me the bliss that is and, and, uh, lifting the veil a little bit and just feeling that tremendous love and the bliss. And I would say the humor, mm. the humor of, of uh, God's humor or, you know, my teacher's humor, sense of humor. And this was my teacher. I didn't know if, it, if, if this was a male or a female, but I did know our issues from, you know, he reminded me directly of a past life uh, in which I had reached some degree of love, but couldn't understand these people who hurt and kill children. And so it was very clear that I had been given this experience in order to come use this life to, to develop my love fully, to be able to love everyone. But the bliss I experienced there was also to model what I should be striving for in my healing, that I wouldn't fall into the many traps that had mm -hmm. been laid out. Because it's not like I came out and now because I had these mo moments of rebellion, I had self-esteem. My ego was completely destroyed, wounded, 
tremendously covered with layers and layers and layers of lies um, that I had to break out of. And it was going to take a long time. And I did not have a, a strong self-esteem at all. And self-esteem is sort of an anchor in the world. And mm-hmm. I didn't have that. I knew I didn't want power, but I also didn't have self-esteem. So after my rescue, the healing told me I should look for that subtle bliss, mm-hmm. which is powerful, the most powerful, but it's also subtle. And it was subtler than what I had experienced, which were these most high of any highs. Yeah. And, and having read your book, the, the audience who's listening now doesn't even have the context of that bliss experience, but it was absolutely a horrid situation that you were put in. Absolutely an abomination. It's like no, no body should ever have to be in that situation. And the fact that spirit, God, the light, you know, bl- blessed you out of this in a way that's so magnanimous. I mean, to me, your story is so much a story of hope. And I, I always, I always say, Annika Lucas is like you're my idol for healing. It's like you, you healed all of this uh, uh, amazing darkness, and it gives hope for all of us. It really does. It's it's very amazing. And I have to also say, I'll admit that I'm I'm reading your book. You're talking about those four days when you were without food, and five, I mean, five, five. days. Okay. Yeah. I mean, as a parent, I'm sitting there. I'm so mad at your mom. I'm just, I'm just, I'm so mad at these characters, and I'm, I'm having to kind of watch my anger, my rage, you know, my what I, what, what's happening inside me a, a, about this, and 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 I'm, I'm then I'm looking at you as a child who's able to see it, you know, with that infusion of the Christ light, see things differently, and it just reminds me of okay, that's I, I need to get to that place. Not again, like this is all excusable. It's not excusable. It's not okay. But to be at this place where, like you said, to get to this place where you can love everyone. It, and it's, I'm not there, just to be clear. You know, it's not like I'm there all the time. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> I'm healing all the time. And it's yeah. not going to happen. <laughs> right. And it's, it's a process. It's a process. But you're in that process. Given all that's happened to you, you're in that process. And that's a miracle. I think. Oh, absolutely. No, I should have been dead a thousand times over. I shouldn't be alive. And, you know, all of life is a miracle, though. I mean, really, all of it is miraculous. I feel now with the healing that I have received, there's just, it's all grace. It's all God. Everything is God. And everything is here only to help us grow so that we can learn that this is not where it's at. (laughs) (laughs) We want to expand our consciousness to reach Christ. We want to expand to that Christ consciousness and let go of these layers that um, put us in this delusive state, I believe. The delusive state that matter is matter and that everything is as it seems. Yes, yes. Um, I think this is a really good place to close this hour. Uh, I really appreciate, I, I, you know, we could talk for hours. I, I do really yeah. recommend your book. Um, you do say that it requires courage to read your story, which it does, but it really is a, a great and very important st- story to to read and to really digest. Um, so I'll be back with the second hour with Annika, and we're going to kind of look at more of the healing and and more of what she's doing today with all of this. And um, I just appreciate everyone hanging in there for an hour. And I'm trying to do this an hour segments because I also know it's 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 difficult 
for people to stay in this space for hours on end. It's difficult for most people. And for all of you who hung in there and who are willing to read the story, you know, God bless you all. Thank you for bearing witness. And um, I'll be back in a second hour with Annika. Thank you so much. And I now close this spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community. And remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.